Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Levy, CEO of the largest independent online financial advisor, Betterman. Sarah spent 21 years at Viacom, 18 of which were focused on Nickelodeon before expanding her remit to also include iconic brands like MTV, Comedy Central, and BET. For a series of senior leadership roles, she led global strategy, finance, and operations, including taking world-class IP like SpongeBob and South Park beyond the TV screen to consumer products, theme parks, hotels, and more. Sarah, welcome. So pleased you can be here with me. I really wanted to begin with your impressive 21-year career at Viacom. You worked your way up to your first CRO position at Nickelodeon. How would you describe that part of your journey? So I started my career really looking for something I could be passionate about. And that passion for me was media. So I began my career actually right out of school at Disney, where I did strategic planning and thought about the film and television business from sort of a corporate seat. And that was really my first introduction to business life and to strategy. And from there, I went to business school because I felt that that would be a great, you know, jumping off point and would meet, you know, a lot of great, interesting people and begin my sort of curiosity journey, which I'll call it. Um, From there, I I left school and came to Viacom, but really more specifically came to Nickelodeon within Viacom. And my thought process there was having been at Disney and having seen what kids IP could do and the potential of children's IP, I got really excited about sort of the brand and the mission and the business opportunity at Nickelodeon. And so I did. I spent 18 years at Nickelodeon, really growing from business development and strategy jobs into operations and finance. And I was a little bit of a fixer while I was at Nickelodeon. So we had all sorts of parts of the business. And, you know, if something wasn't working quite right, I was given a shot to see if I could figure out what was wrong. And so spent a lot of time doing that. And then um, we were primarily a cable business when I joined. And, And now when you think about cable, you think of it on sort of the backside of my career. But at the time, it was really a growth business, you know, a huge and exciting place to be. And the the remit was really thinking about how do we take this great iconic IP and cable properties and translate them in other ways. So launch streaming businesses, we acquired some IP, and then we took that IP, essentially what I'll call off-platform. And that was really where I spent a lot of my time in addition to running the operations And then as you mentioned at the top, I then translated the Nickelodeon experience to a broader experience within Viacom, where I really did more of the same, but for a broader platform and multiple audience. Was there an end in mind? You mentioned, you know, there was a, it was a natural inquisitiveness and there was a couple of um, items there that I was looking forward to asking about, about the curiosity journey and becoming a fixer and this kind of thing. Was there an end in mind, Sarah, were you kind of there going, I'm I'm enjoying the journey and I'll just see where it takes me. Were you going now? I, I want to have one of those kind of top jobs over time for whatever reason. I don't know that I had a specific end in mind. I think, you know, I love the journey. I love the team and the people. And so I think a huge part of what kept me at Viacom for so many years was I kept doing different and new things. So I kept learning and I kept working with different people 
And I really did sort of fall in love with not only the brand and what we were trying to accomplish for the audience, but the people I worked with. And I think that was, you know, it's interesting sort of how different I think this newer generation is as they approach the workplace, because I really loved the commitment to growing and building something. And I think for me, that was really what motivated me day in and day out. I mentioned to you pre-conversation, but there's um, an astonishing amount of difference between the percentage of boards of big corporations that are made up by women compared to those of SMEs. Actually, the SME data suggests that most of it pretty well, and there's a pretty good balance. What's been the difference, do you think? And have you stopped much to reflect on what it's been, Sarah, that's allowed you to do that, where quite clearly that isn't the most common of journeys? Well, so I started joining boards actually on behalf of Viacom. When I was at Viacom, one of the parts of my job was to enter into joint venture partnerships. And as part of those partnerships, I joined a couple of boards where I represented Viacom. And I think in some ways it was low stakes, right? They were private companies and I had worked on the deal. I had gotten to know the CEOs in most of these instances. And so I was a logical person to kind of take that leap. So Viacom really gave me that first opportunity, I would say. And then from there, it was really through my professional network. And candidly, I think boards began to look for women. And so I had an opportunity to say, look, I've had this experience in, in a more sheltered, perhaps, you know, private company space. And I got my first opportunity to join a public company board uh, about four years ago, again, through my professional network, but really leveraging some of the specific expertise I had built working with IP and building the toy side specifically of our business. Um, and so that's really where I started was with a little bit of expertise in working on boards and a little bit of expert subject matter expertise that was pertinent to the opportunity. I think you touched upon a couple of areas there, but it would be really interesting to hear what you would summarize as the key areas that had you not done those things that you think your chances would have been so much more limited because you, you've mentioned networking there on a couple of occasions. Like, were, were, were there some proactive things that you were doing to make sure that you were a front and center candidate for those opportunities? I was perhaps not as proactive or deliberate maybe as some might think about I think that what's important is building connections. And I think that that is true sort of up, down, and sideways in your career. And if I were to self-critique, I would actually say in some ways, maybe I wasn't always as good at it or as deliberate about it as maybe one should or could be. But when I think about the connections I made, you get these opportunities sometimes from surprising places. And I think for me, that's really the takeaway. I made an early connection while at Disney to someone who I didn't even really stay in that close touch with, who was the catalyst for my first public company board opportunity. And so I think that this idea of you never know where the opportunity is going to come from is sort of an interesting one for me. Would there be anything, because as you say, you've spent a long time in different elements, of course, of Viacom, but are there some key things that you would suggest that companies that want to have a better representation at board level could do as a starting point to, um, yeah, to improve things? Well, I think that subject matter expertise can be really useful to boards. And so two areas that I think are clear opportunities, whether for women or just for board development more generally, is audit committees and compensation committees. 
So I think that HR professionals can be really additive to compensation committees. And I think people with financial backgrounds and a finance trajectory can be really helpful on audit committees. And so I think if you think about both of those areas as really breeding grounds for excellent subject matter experts, I think that's a place where companies can be helpful in really putting forward their executives as they grow in those roles to be additive to boards, because those are specific skills that boards need to round out their expertise. I'm really fascinated to hear what that experience was like after leaving Viacom after such a long time to join Betterment, not only to join Betterment, that were definitely sat in a different place of industry, and not only that, but the journey into the CEO seat, which I've only been doing it for a couple of years. And wow, it's a unique one. That's for sure. Talk me through that experience so far. Well, so far I'm loving it and I can't believe I didn't do it sooner. So that would be, for me at least, would be, you know, if you if you have the interest, pursue it. For me, I was really looking for a couple of things at a specific moment of transition in my career. So I was looking to learn, you know, for me, it comes back to this curiosity, right? I had spent essentially 25 years in the media business and the problems we were thinking about were getting stale for me. And so I really wanted to dig into something new and have that next, you know, journey of learning for myself. So that was one. Two was thinking about the size of the company. Right. I was really interested in the growth space and in a smaller company. Uh, I had spent a lot of years in big corporations and really wanted to understand what the nimbleness of a smaller company could feel like and what that growth could feel like which a little bit harkened back, honestly, to my early days at Nickelodeon, when we were sort of a small business within the context of a bigger business in high growth mode. And it was really, really fun. So that was uh, sort of number two for me. And then number three was really finding a brand and a mission that I could believe in. And I hit all three with Betterment, right? I found a brand admission that was exciting, an opportunity to learn, and a new growth stage. And at the same time, I got to take this next leadership step, which you know we can talk more about. When it comes to making that big move, let's start there, because there's about two or three things off the back of that that I wanted to ask Sarah. But when it comes to making that big move, fear is always a factor, right? I've been doing this or, or that, 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 next, that next challenge, especially for the, for the CEO job. Would there be any, uh, any advice to someone listening? You said that you kind of wish you'd have done it a bit sooner, but uh, you know, has that fear running through? Would there be any uh, tips you could give on that? Look, there's always fear in something new. And so I don't know that necessarily fear is the number one emotion. I think, I think fear can be, can be helpful. Feeling a little bit uneasy can be helpful because it makes you want to read more. It makes you want to listen more. It makes you want to ask more questions, or at least for me, it does. So, you know, one of the benefits of coming, I think, into a new organization and a new industry for me was there really was so much I didn't know that there was no time to be afraid of being a CEO because the more powerful emotion was this whole team and everyone around me knows so much more than I do about what we're embarking on. And I really need them. And, you know, back to the people piece, like I need them and I need their support and I need them to believe, but it's not that they need to believe just that they need to believe in me. I need to believe in them. And so that for me was sort of the exciting part of coming into something so brand new I would agree with you that the CEO role, I think, has elements 
that you can learn along the way in other jobs. And then there are elements that are brand new. And I don't think there's any preparing for that. The other thing I was really interested to ask you is that the organization you're in was very much founder-led for a long time. And there's a huge difference between a founder-led business and a separately appointed CEO coming in. There's approaches that could be an absolute failure quite quickly. There's things that are going to work better. How have you found that journey? Because I'd, I'd, I'd imagine it's a very easy thing to get wrong, but um, the, the role seems to have been going well so far, Sarah. You might uh, you know, share something else on that. But yeah, it'd be interesting to hear about that journey. Well, from, from my seat so far, so good. So I hope I have no, no big news, uh, no big news with respect to that here. But, you know, let's start with John Stahn, who was our founder and, and his strengths. And then where I feel I can, can and have built on those strengths by complementing them. So John, as many good founders do, um, had an incredible passion. He saw around corners and he was he really believed in product-led innovation. He saw an opportunity in the marketplace and he thought that product and technology was the way to improve financial lives uh, for sort of earlier investors in their journey. By contrast, my strengths are brand building, operational scaling, really management and growing teams. And so when you think about what the business needed when he was responsible and what the business needed when I took over the reins, um, I think you can see a really natural progression there. And I would say if there's a watch out, the biggest thing that I think um, was helpful to me was not moving too quickly out of the gate, but was really coming in and taking the time to listen and to listen to the team. Because what I learned was that the answers were all here already. And what they just needed was someone to listen and then to prioritize sort of the very long list of things that we could pursue, you know, in search of success and growth. What is your process at the moment, Sarah, when it comes to your goals and objectives as CEO? What does that process look like? And um, are there any key factors that you're considering when you're making strategic decisions? Well, I would say, say number one, two, and three is the people, right? So it really all starts with first with your leadership team and then pushing them to greatness, making sure they're the right people, both individually and in combination, and then making sure that they're doing the same, you know, beneath them and, and beneath them. So so I think number one is people. I would say number two is destination and strategy, right? So where, where do we want to be? Who do we want to be when we grow up? And articulating that clearly for the organization where you're headed. So whether you want to call that vision or strategy or destination, I think those are all kind of variants of the same. And then the third is prioritization really against number two, right? Is how do we take the resources we have and the resources available to us and make sequencing choices that will best set us up for success? Has there been Sarah, going all the way back to education, some people seem to retain their networks and their learns from education throughout their careers. Other people, they have a mentor that they've worked with 20 years. Other people just read a lot and just make sure that they're kind of up to speed with the most thinking. Have there been any kind of core methods that you've returned to as the basis of how to go about your leadership in business so far? 
Certainly, I have a, a small handful of sort of colleagues and mentors. And actually, some of my mentors have been really my friends, have been people that I met in school and have stayed in touch with. I have actually a, a core group of women um, in particular who are a source of strength for me and a, and a source of inspiration. So that's definitely a part of it. And I think they we tend to tap each other into networks um, that can be incredibly powerful and helpful. Um, and so that comes in the form of dinners and, you know, talks and conferences and things like that. So I would say that's one. I think another would be, um, would be reading, you know, learning, whether that's podcasts, books, articles, right? You can never read enough and it's changing so fast. Um, and I always feel buried. I always feel like there's more I want to read that I can't get to. I had a fascinating conversation with the CEO of a housing trust in the UK last week who said that she plans her months and her quarters out and her years out in advance in terms of what are the key meetings and et cetera. But she also said that the second thing that goes in the diary when she's working with her assistant is having two hours of thinking time each day, thinking and, and being able to actually work. One of my big learns in the first year of doing the job was the fact I wanted to do everything. I'm a high energy person. I love the adrenaline. I love communicating. I love positive energy. But actually that comes with danger unless you've got a bit of a leash on it, I found, <laughs> because you try and do everything. You load your diary up. I love working hard. I love working 12 hour, 14 hour days. And that has a knock on effect on other areas of life as well as your own colleagues. Have you found some methods to making sure that you have enough stopping and reflecting and learning and reading time, Sarah, as, as well as the desire to do well in the, in, in the new position? So I'm not sure if I do it enough, to be honest with you. I don't think I'm very good at using downtime. So I think that that's one of the challenges is the busier I am, the more productive I am. And so, um, so I do like to be busy like you, whether that's, you know, burning the candle at both ends, but I find that on the weekends, definitely allow time to decompress and to really have that thought time and reading time. So that's where I spend a lot of time, the mornings as well. You know, I get started probably an hour before an hour and a half before a lot of my colleagues. And so that can be a great time to, to have sort of personal time and thought time. Mm. Uh, but those are really, those are really the best times. I don't find that in the middle of the day, it's particularly productive to sort of, you know, sit and think and, and have my own space. I like to sort of pack the days with interactive content, shall we say. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I remember reading an article a couple of weeks ago about, I've always been a morning person too. I love being in the office early. I like that extra bit of time it gives you a little bit of time of reflection. I also enjoy riding the bike enormously to work, which is what I've done since lockdown. Just that extra half an hour a day of some time to think. But uh, it was interesting reading a couple of weeks ago about the fact that there are, apparently there's some kind of chromosome or scientists might be shouting at the uh, podcast now, but uh, there's something in built with human beings that either makes them much more productive generally in the morning or much more productive in the evening. And I think appreciating that, that different team members are going to have different ways that they prefer to work is, uh, was, is certainly uh, rechanneled my thinking on it. Um, interesting to hear how your day starts that way and, and, and actually almost what to, to know yourself enough to know to avoid trying to do thinking time in the middle of the day. It's, it's not just, it's, it's just not going to work. How have you in your experience so far, Sarah, we're, we're talking about something there, which is summarized by the word awareness. It's having awareness in yourself and helping your colleagues and especially senior leadership colleagues to also get the awareness of what they're good at, what they're not so good at and how to therefore manage their time appropriately. It's also one of those words that I don't think gets spoken about too much. I don't see much social media content on it. I don't see many 
TED Talks on awareness and how to go about building it. Has there been any methods that you use with your kind of leadership team, be it offsite days or any other ways of doing things like personality strength finders that you found particularly effective when it comes to building the awareness of what the collective leadership team looks like? Well, I definitely have done a number of those personality tests over the course of my career. And I think that they've been incredibly impactful at certain moments. And and I can remember a particular story where I worked with a woman and we just weren't connecting and we needed to work together and she wasn't hearing me and we were getting very frustrated. And we, we did one of those personality tests. And one of the things I learned was she was hearing something different than what I thought I was saying because of the way she you know, took in information. And just bringing that awareness to that interaction, I was able to actually reframe essentially the same content, but in a way that she was able to hear it. And our relationship and our partnership was transformed by just a change in communication style. And so I think for sure those can be really, really impactful moments, particularly when directed specifically. I think the sort of, you know, here's my personality trait and what am I going to do with it can be less useful versus, you know, a more specific application. But one of my awarenesses is around the energy I get from other people and from sort of the collective work. And so, you know, I know there's been a tension over these last couple of years, sort of post-COVID around how much in the office, how much out of the office. And it's, you know, a big topic. Whereas awareness may not be written about, this topic is for sure written about. And I think for me, I am a real believer in the benefits that come from working together and from building those relationships and from serendipity. And I know a lot of leaders say this, and then the retort from employees can be, yes, but I need my flexibility. And I don't think those two things need to be at odds, right? I think that what's beautiful about this sort of new hybrid life is we can put rules in place that allow for for both, but I do think we need both. And I think the research is starting to show that spending time together not only builds loyalty, but builds teamwork and builds vocabulary in ways that you can't really do quite as well on the screen. And interestingly, I I think one of the observations that we had here was the folks who pre-COVID had pre-existing relationships with each other were very easily able to adapt to a remote world because they had a shorthand and coming in new was much, much harder. And interestingly, I actually became CEO during the pandemic. So I hadn't met anyone. And that was really, really hard, right? Because Zoom, you just get the work, right? You don't have time for all the the chit chat and the get to know you and the building the kind of personal bridges. And so I like to think that we found a really nice balance Um, here. And certainly the balance is working for me and it may not be perfect for everyone. But I think over time, back to your question about awareness, I think different employees are going to have to pick companies that align with their personal, you know, style. And I think that trying to be everything to everyone just may not be as effective. Loyalty and culture in a hybrid working world simply feels like a very new challenge that almost everyone in any director level job and above. Have you found any particular ways of addressing that key, key topic? Because talent is always a shortage. Like There's such a talent shortage. It was called like a talent crisis at this conference I was at because there was something like six and a half million open positions in the US and 
just not enough good talented people to go around that means hanging on to your good people let alone attracting people and keeping them loyal is is a key battle that every ceo and uh, and every leader will face how have you gone about that process so far and has there been any particular things that you found effective in doing so I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the the question and the challenge. And I would just add one thing to the challenge before I answer the question, which is I also think there's a generational challenge because there's a perception that mobility in jobs actually leads to better outcomes, right? I can get a higher salary. I can get a new challenge. Someone will take a bet on me. So I think you add that to everything you're saying and you're exactly right, which is I think this is the biggest challenge we face as leaders. I've always believed that it is not until year three in a job that you become really additive and really productive. And I think the pact we need to make with our employees is that We want them to do their best work, and therefore we owe them back a responsibility to develop them and to grow them. And so for me, the best thing we can do as leaders is open our minds to this idea that tenure will breed productivity. And as a result, let's find new ways to keep employees learning. So some examples here is, you know, having a a young, talented executive in the marketing department say, you know what, I'd like to try my hand at product. Can I make that move? Having an executive in the operations department saying, I want to try my hand at product because at a technology company, product is an exciting kind of center of activity and leadership. And so I think if we can provide kind of training and growth and new job experiences for people and really take a bet on them as humans, as opposed to taking a bet on them due to their resume, because we know them and because they're already contributing, I think we will get a lot more back from that. And I think they will in turn grow. And and my hope is that sort of chasing a new opportunity because it feels like a little bit of a higher salary or it feels like the grass is always greener. Look, if you love the culture, I think my advice to young executives would be find a way to stay but ask for personal growth. And personal growth doesn't have to be a promotion and a higher salary, right? Personal growth is about what skills are you building and what are you learning to make yourself better positioned for the future? A couple of questions about you as an individual, Sarah. I think that was super interesting what you said there and certainly quite a bit of nodding and thought provocation from from, from my end. But has there been one standout skill from yourself as an individual that's really helped you be successful? Is it like we, we ask everyone that comes into our business, What's your superpower? What's, what's the thing that's, that you're going to really kind of bring to the party, add to our culture? Is there one thing that you could point to in your own background? Well, I would certainly go back to curiosity, right? And a, a willingness to therefore ask questions, right? And a humility around being willing to ask questions where you really don't know where they're going to lead you. So I think you can never learn enough. So I would say that's one And a second one for me is really identifying those superpowers in the team around you and that supports you and not being threatened by that, right? I am better if my team is better. And so I think that's that's really important is to know that you scale with the power of the people who work with you. How do you stay motivated and continue to push yourself as a CEO, Sarah? You mentioned that there's that close network of friends. Does that do the job? Are there any other methods that you found to be effective in the last year or so? I just love having having a life outside my family life 
that is rich and growing. And I think that having that outside my family life brings more richness to my family life as well. And so I will always be seeking new opportunities, whether that is professional opportunities, whether that is travel. I think all of that makes you kind of a more well-rounded and excited person uh, to live in this world. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think it's the balance and perspective that sometimes that bit of space gives you can be absolutely enormous, can't it? Um, Has there been anything that in your career so far, Sarah, you've had to learn the hard way? I would say there definitely is some you know, inherent bias in the workforce that you don't want to be there, but that can kind of rear its head at times. And certainly as a more kind of operations and financially leaning woman, I found myself in a lot of kind of very male spaces. I mean, look, I ended up selecting a career at the intersection of finance and technology, which, you know, we can all agree is short on women. So, so I think there's been some, you know, some friction there at times um, that you need to overcome. But I don't know if I'd go so far as to say learn the hard way. Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that certainly gives uh, an, an area for thought that I was uh, I was nodding along to for sure. Um, a couple of quick fire questions, um, Sarah. That I always love to close off with. Out of all the reading you've done, all the podcasts or movies you've watched or listened to, would you say that there could be one that you you could recommend that you've taken some long lasting learns from? I think I'm going to go with TV instead of movies and podcasts and things since I'm a t- since I was a TV executive at heart. Seems fair. Seems I'm going to go I'm going to go with Ted Lasso and I know we probably don't think about that as deep learning but I would look to Ted Lasso for kindness and for optimism and I think that those are two qualities that can really help no matter the circumstance. Love that. And if there was one thing that you'd want our listeners to take away today, Sarah, in terms of their continued advancement in business, in corporate life, what would that be? Be curious. Awesome. Nice and simple. And as a man who loves simplicity, Sarah, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful place to end it. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey and your leadership learns with us today. Um, I know there'll be lots that resonates with listeners and like me, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Thanks again for coming on, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Peter.